I'm Natalie Alexander, and thanks for joining us on The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Geneva Library and Archives. Our focus in this podcast is building the conversation on multilateralism through speaking with experts and practitioners from diverse areas. Today, our conversation brings you ideas from the perspective of a diplomat. Our director, Francesco Pisano, invited to the studio Jivan Georginski, who served for three years in Geneva as head, chargé d'affaires, of the permanent mission of the Republic of North Macedonia to the UN in Geneva from 2016 to 2019. In this discussion, he shares what it was like working in multilateral diplomacy in Geneva, and he gives particular highlights from two experiences, chairing the 2018 meeting of states parties to the BWC, or the Biological Weapons Convention, and also in 2019, chairing the CCW, or the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, Group of Governmental Experts on Laws, or what's commonly known as Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems. Now, hang tight because he explains more about these legal instruments and why they're key examples of multilateralism in action. And he also looks at some questions. What is it like to be a small state diplomat in the UN? And more than that, what is the role of small states in multilateralism? How does diversity, creativity, finding common ground come into play in this process? You'll find out in this conversation. I hope you learn as much as I did. You'll even hear a bit about why we should be moving more towards a sci-fi series that I'm sure you know well. Enjoy the listen. Here we go. Welcome, everyone. This is The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library Geneva. I get to be the host today of a special guest, a friend of mine, who's a diplomat who's been in Geneva previously. And I'm very pleased to welcome Jivan Georgiski. Jivan, welcome. Thank you very much, Francesco. It's really great to be at uh, your podcast. Let me congratulate you, not just for this initiative, but really what the UN Library has been doing uh, over the past few years under your leadership, but what it also represents. It, it's really the world's, the humanity's collective archive of something very important, of something that basically has been the storyline of a hundred years of multilateralism. And uh, you are one of the guardians of, of this story. And uh, so thank you very much for, for playing that role uh, from all of us, let me say. Thank but you. Thank you so much. It's, it's such a pleasure to have you here. And, and indeed, this podcast has been designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. So I'm very pleased that you're back in Geneva and you can be our guest. Before we go into the discussion of today, which is about multilateralism and the role of small states in multilateralism, please tell our audience a little bit about yourself so they know who they're listening to. Well, as you said, a diplomat. I am a Macedonian diplomat. I served here as the, the head of mission, the charge, for, for three years between June 2016 and uh, the July of 2019. Just finished and uh, went back to capital right now. Before, I've worked uh, in quite a few different things. So it's not been a trajectory of uh, a diplomatic career, even though, to be honest, uh, between us, I've wanted to be a multilateral diplomat since high school. So this is one of the few things that I knew that that's what, uh, where I wanted to go, but I didn't take the direct uh, route to it. I, I've done things uh, both in the private sector and uh, worked for the UNDP and uh, other. So in the development aspect of the UN, I've seen it from 
from from that side as well worked in uh, internet governance issues beforehand and so it has been this i think experience as well that well prepared me for this uh, work here in geneva because to be a small state diplomat in geneva you really need to be flexible you need to be uh, able to go into different issues quickly to understand them to be able to know to prioritize it's like I, I liken it to trying to drink water out of a fire hydrant. You know, you have to be very smart about how you approach the fire hydrant and the water with it. But if you do that, and this is why I think that my experience uh, beforehand was was to my advantage, the fact that I had uh, somewhat of a varied experience, then you can really, one, present one's own country well. And it's just the, this is the key thing. We are all diplomats of a, of a given country but to also contribute to the many issues that are going on. And, and that is something that I try to do uh, in my work uh, over the past three years here as uh, the acting head uh, of the mission. But it's been my approach basically since that moment when I, th I knew that I wanted to be a multilateral diplomat because I understand diplomacy as and diplomats with that as the glue that keeps global peace together. We have a, an important job that we do, and we don't do a good enough job communicating that to non-diplomats, because I think it is very hard for non-diplomats to really understand what diplomats do. You know, the image of a diplomat, and it's the same for bilateral or for multilateral, perhaps somewhat even more for multilateral, is that, you know, they go to these cocktails and it's all, they're holding a flute champagne of a glass of champagne and this is all they do and, you know. But what is not seen, actually, is this sustained engagement that we as diplomats do on an everyday basis with 150, 190 plus other entities who are exactly alike. All sovereign states are alike, big or small but also with UN bodies, but also with different uh, other institutions that are there. And it is this sustained engagement that is actually this piece, uh, this glue to the piece that I'm, that I'm talking about. So it's uh, in, 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 a, in a broader answer to, to your question, I think that my, my, my past has prepared for this, but I also am a strong advocate for the fact that Diplomacy, and specifically multilateral diplomacy, is something that today we must protect and we must really work on making it effective. And all of us really should uh, keep our focus in that regard as diplomats. And you have, uh, I would like to expose our audience to your experience as a diplomat of a small mission of a small country in such a large diplomatic environment like Geneva. So let's go a little bit to these working dimension, working experience you had. For example, I'd be interested to discuss with you how can the diplomacy of a small state contribute to the overall diplomatic game? You are a specialist of security and disarmament because this is the area in which you were representing your, your country. So we haven't said that, but basically you were the representative of Northern Macedonia for the disarmament. Uh, community and also for other dimensions. Uh, actually, as head of the basically of the of our mission here, I was representative for all uh, okay. aspects in Geneva. When I when I got here, 
my country at that time was a member of the Human Rights Council. So my first uh, few months were actually thrown, being thrown into the, the Human Rights Council and jumping into that. And it was really kind of learning uh, that and, and being, well, not learning, I had, I had knowledge of human rights quite a bit before, but really of the dynamic uh, that is the continual functioning of the Human Rights Council. The security aspect that you mentioned, the disarmament and arms control aspect, and thank you for saying expert, but it really, actually, if I am an expert at the moment, it is because of my engagement over the two years. Before that, I did not have that much experience in that. And I think that that actually was beneficial because I think it is very important as well for sometimes to have people who come in in a given dynamic that has been that has its own um, that it has its own dynamic so a given area of work and to be able to test the boundaries of of those dynamics so i was chair last year of the biological weapons convention so the, the chair of the meeting of state parties of the biological weapons convention which is the annual meeting of the bwc so very briefly, just for everybody to understand the, this convention as a, as a regime, the BWC, BTWC, Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention, is the first international regime, legal instrument, that covers a whole area, that, that bans a whole area of weapons of mass destruction. So from all the different weapons of mass destruction, biological weapons, chemical weapons, nuclear BWC was the first one that addressed this whole category in 72 and said, we, we ban this, we prohibit the development of it, we prohibit the ownership, etc., etc., etc. And it developed organically. First, there was an agreement to have in five years a review conference. After a few review conferences, there was an agreement to have annual meeting of states parties, uh, an, an implementation support unit. So all of these things kind of developed on the go. But it didn't develop as comprehensively as the Chemical Weapons Convention, which in The Hague has the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which together with the Chemical Weapons Convention represents a very comprehensive regime. You have a legal instrument and you have a body to implement it and to, to support it with a lot of people. So the BWC didn't address that. It has these annual meetings, meeting of state parties, which I chaired last year, which keep the ball rolling in a way. And can you imagine how important this is? I mean, this is the, a category of weapons that for a very long time, for since World War I really, has been unanimously said to be morally repugnant, like something that we do, no country should engage in owning or using, etc. But here is what is happening right now. This has been the case for a very long time, and it was the case because the especially the big countries that can have the security environment to protect a very highly dangerous pathogen like smallpox for instance of which there's still only two uh, samples kept in very very strict conditions right now because of advances in synthetic biology and genetic engineering and because of such tools to do that with as 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 crispr cas9 which is a tool that makes it possible for people like you and I, who have no background in biological sciences, to be able to play with the basic building blocks of life. 
So we're at a stage right now where if you needed a very expensive uh, laboratory with very well-developed technicians with very expensive resources, just 10, 15 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, now you can order a toolkit for $100 or euro or francs uh, online, receive it, and play with the building blocks of life and take a little genetic material from a fish and put it into a dog and take a little bit from this. And so now CRISPR-Cas9 is an amazing tool that will certainly yield a lot of amazing results for humanity. That should not be underestimated in research and cancer and all of these things. There's an, but with such all such technologies, the potential of using this in wrong ways is also immense, including as a biological weapon. So right now, if we're talking about a BWC that has been constructed in a time when things were pretty predictable, and certainly there was a, some a, a very strong agreement that you know no major power is going to use this, and that means that you know everybody else would not also. The game is changing right as we speak in that. So within that, as chair, I would. I had to come in and understand both the history of the Biological Weapons Convention, the currents, and also to really go in to the current developments in, in, in biotech. So the developments that we're witnessing in front of us are immense, but there is there should be a degree of comfort in the world that there is a body in Geneva that is thinking about the potential malicious uses that could disturb the peace of the world. There are diplomats and biologists and all kinds of different experts who are thinking of how to keep a peace together. And I think that that's very important. The BWC is a very important regime and all such conventions are important in that they sustain this dialogue on these important issues. So what you're saying is that there's a direct connection a positive direct connection between multilateralism, diplomacy, and keeping the world safe. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and this, is, this is that aspect that I mentioned earlier, that we as diplomats don't do a good enough job in communicating that. That there's an absolute causal link between what we do here and the absence of war, and the absence of conflict or instability. Because... You can easily say you have a product and you, you, you come out and you say, this is what I did. But it's very hard to say, well, this didn't happen because we, we're, we're doing our job well. You know? and, and this is our dilemma as diplomats. But there is a way to communicate it and we should do a better job of doing that. Now, let me get to another aspect that was a part of the BWC, the finances. So imagine the fact that this convention and I hope to have communicated its wealth, its value, and its, its importance, costs $1.5 million. That's the amount of one Tomahawk missile. That would be the annual budget? The annual full budget of maintaining the Biological Weapons Convention going. Is $1.5 million. $1.5 million. Okay. And that consists of meetings, and that consists of three staff positions. Three staff positions. Now, an international NGO, many, most international NGOs have a bigger budget than that. And we're talking about the Biological Weapons Convention. So that's the first thing when I would like to say about the finances. The second thing is 
even with those 1.5 million, we have a problem. And we had a very serious problem last year of how to keep it going. And, and it was given to me as a responsibility as incoming chair. It was given to me as a mandate uh, from the previous year that the incoming chair would produce an information paper on finances and basically propose ways to resolve it. And basically, I identified in my information paper three causes. One is systemic non-payment by many countries. Many countries just don't pay. Second, delayed payment. So some countries pay in, in January, some countries pay in June, some countries pay in August. And that has consequences because the UN financial rules and regulations say that you need to have the money on account in order to pay whatever, to be able to book a, a room, to be able to pay a contract, whatever it is, right? But the third is that I said there is a degree of, of tension between the UN financial rules and regulations and this convention, which is not formally a part of the UN. So the, in the implementation part, there was a problem. And what was required was for us collectively, and it was my responsibility as chair to start that, to understand, first of all, the issue properly. And what I understood was that we had diplomats talking to accountants with diplomatic language and not being understood, and accountants talking to diplomats with accounting language and not being understood. So at one point, it was a matter of translation, I mean, or interpretation rather, where the interpretation of the diplomats and the interpretation of the accountants so that we all understood each other so that we could address it properly. And we developed a set of measures which to this day are effective in making sure that the finances of the BWC are sound, which is an example that can be copied in other ways. And this year it was to in the convention, certain conventional weapons, the CCW. But it also points to this, what I said in the beginning, how important it is to also have perhaps other backgrounds. When you come in from a different background, you have the possibility of pulling out, zooming out and looking at it from a different angle and struggling it with yourself and, and, and trying to understand it but that's important because very I've, I've seen it a lot. I see, I see that people get stuck in negotiations, for instance, on only on their positions. And sometimes you need to also pull them out and understand their interests better than they understand their own interests. Because then you can understand their interests and convince them that it's in their interest, even if it's not a part of their positions. And this is where compromise started being possible within a multilateral framework like that. So I wanted to, uh, perhaps I took a little bit more time, sorry, but I wanted to paint these different experiences, for insights that, that I've had that I think are important to communicate amongst us all. Because I think it's often missed in our daily work. All of us do it. We get into a given dynamic of work and we forget sometimes to pull out a little bit and look at it from a different point of view. During your tenure here in Geneva, you also chaired another body. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I've chaired actually a few bodies here of completely different areas. I chaired WIPO bodies in patent law treaty and uh, other similar treaties. But I'm just finishing up actually just a week ago when it was adopted by the meeting of high contracting parties of the convention on certain conventional weapons. And apologies to our listeners with all of these long names which are even more difficult when you say the acronyms, the CCWGG on laws. Okay, we, 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 <laughs> so, need, we need to understand what this is. Unwrap yeah. so, it for us. What is it? CCW, the Convention of Certain Conventional Weapons, GG, Group of Governmental Experts on Laws on Lethal Autonomous Weapons Systems. So this is, it has unfortunately been 
called the killer robots discussion because for many this is what is all what it's all about i would like to uh, in a bit i can i can say why I, I have a problem with that but this is the 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 main area of work and that is that there's new technologies that are allowing existing weapons but also potential new weapons that may have a degree of autonomy built into them because of advances in computing technology and let's say it outright, artificial intelligence. So this is the main international normative discussion on these kinds of, of weapons. And it's a very complex one. So this year I chaired it. Um, the group has existed basically since 2014. And it's very important also, it's very interesting to understand its trajectory of work because they're both rooted in Geneva. The issue was first raised within the Human Rights Council by a special rapporteur on extrajudicial killings that said automated and potential autonomous weapons, drones, are problematic from the point of view of human rights in many different points of areas of the world. So from the Human Rights Council, it was taken to the other side of our palais. So basically from uh, the side where the Human Rights Council is and those who know will know it, those who don't are invited. It's an amazing hall to walk through the palais. We walk through this beautiful palais and come to the side where more security issues and disarmament and arms control issues are, are, are being discussed. And it was, the discussion was started, interestingly, within this convention on certain conventional weapons. So what is the convention on certain conventional weapons? It's a very interesting legal instrument. It's a legal instrument. So first of all, it's an, it's an instrument of international humanitarian law. IHL or international humanitarian law is one of the big branches of international law, one of the initial ones, is the area, the regime, the international area of, of, of legal work that focuses on how to regulate armed conflict once it starts. So there is armed conflict. What are the boundaries? What can states do? What can't they do? Okay, so this is international humanitarian law. And CCW, in a way, is its penultimate legal instrument because it focuses on weapons that are deemed to be, in some way, contravening IHL. So in their own nature or in some way of, of, of them being used. It has five protocols of which, let's say, one is of, on landmines, uh, another one is on incendiary weapons, on blinding lasers. And each of these protocols is quite different from the other. The one protocol is just one sentence. Another one is much more detailed. But it already gives you an indication of how flexible this is in, as an instrument. So we take lethal autonomous weapon systems from a human rights perspective and we put it into in a disarmament and arms control perspective and, and we start looking at it from, from this dimension. In the beginning, it was a meeting of experts within the CCW. There was a French ambassador, then a German ambassador that chaired it. Uh, then it was made into a group of governmental experts. And we had an ambassador of India, Amandeep Gill, who chaired it for two years. And then it was from last year, I was given principle of rotation between the groups to the Eastern European group. And uh, I have been chairing it this year. So within this development of a few years, we've come to a very important point, and that is to have 11 gui guiding principles just adopted last week, 
a set of recommendations and conclusions that have been, again, worked on for the past few years. They've been developing it. And within this aspect of negotiation, where one country comes in with one with their own interest, another one with their own interest. So it's an international negotiation of extreme density with a lot of information being there. But at the same time, it is the, the most advanced normative discussion on the area that is called machine learning, or more popularly, artificial intelligence, of any in the world. In any other area in the world where there's machine learning, where there's artificial intelligence, no other body has come to this point where we are. And that's a great success that, uh, that is a part of International Geneva, because not only because of how it seeks to address a security issue, which it does, but also of how this trajectory of starting as a human rights and then it was seen much more as, as this and then the proper legal instrument in the CCW was found in order to have this discussion in a good way and focusing on the technological aspects, on the IHL, on the legal aspects, instead of just a blame game that would have been a political discussion, you good, you bad. So... Yes, as, as, you, as you said, I've chaired this year the, the GG on laws. It has been a great privilege. And it has been an amazing experience to see countries coming together to address this new issue in a very constructive manner, I must say. The image very often is that, you know, there's disagreement and these countries, this is the, I disagree with that disagreement. I say, no, countries come with their national interests, which is natural because they have a different, they have a given way of looking at things. And, but they come and then they, they try to solve it commonly. And we've done that. We're doing that actually here in a sustained manner. And the CCWGG on laws is one of the many ways that International Geneva shows its worth to the world. You mentioned before in your example, the tension between positions and interests. I imagine that in multilateral diplomacy, this is really the bread and butter of the discussion. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about this tension between these two poles? Sure. So for any given issue that is being discussed, no matter how big or small, no matter whether it is in the Human Rights Council or in disarmament and arms control or in the World Trade Organization or in WIPO or in World Health Organization, there will be a given dynamic of work. An issue will be defined as a perhaps as, as a problem, as an issue. An agenda will be set, and there will be an interaction, uh, negotiation, perhaps even on that on that agenda. There may be a chair, and hopefully there is that kind of proposes the agenda. This is what we we discuss, and then the agenda will define how to address that given problem, and this lasts over a period of time. All the countries, some may engage depending on how important it is and how big they are. Bigger countries may be able to um, cover everything. All the issues that are going on in Geneva, smaller, may need to be selective. But they all have a foreign ministry back home and a government that will define what their interests on that issue are. Now, I think that this is where the nuance of how different countries address this differently matters now. Because... It is very important how those interests or how those positions are formulated. Because in any given negotiation, irrelevant of what stage it is in, in a very nascent stage or in a very advanced stage of negotiation, a diplomat will receive a set of instructions, hopefully, from capital. And hopefully those instructions will come on time. 
And hopefully the instructions will be able to give that diplomat a very clear way of behaving with that. And then it is the diplomat's role to be able to do the best ability of that he or she may be able to do to push those interests as far as possible from the viewpoint of, of their country. A problem may arise, for instance, just in general, and, and just to be indicative of, of your question between positions and interest, if the instructions are very rigid, if they're very precise, and, and if they're very immovable. Now, this may be something that is very important for a given country, maybe that's the reason. So I'm not saying that that should not be the case. But more often than not, that need not be the case, because that creates a very rigid environment in which a diplomat may, may function. And diplomats need to be careful. I mean, this is, these are not no small matters that, that, that we're dealing with. These are very serious issues that we're dealing with. So they, they, of course, would need to abide by the instructions that they receive from the capital. But the instructions or the positions are a reflection of given interests in any given issue. And I found it to be the case that if one really focuses on an interest, and especially a chair can do that, and if one really in a spirit of goodwill and cooperation comes to different delegations and says, why don't we try this and that? Isn't this in your interest as well? Or puts together a group and can we explore this in different way? Can we try to find the common interests here? When the focus is on an interest and not on the positions, there's a lot more room for creativity. And then, then certainly those diplomats can come in and instruct their capitals and say, listen, we've had this uh, breakout group or we had this issue and we've looked at it this way. Why don't you consider it that way? Now, their ministry may say, no, 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 stick to it. And, you know, that's the duty of a diplomat. You must stick to it. Or you, as a diplomat, you may be so convinced and say, no, 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 but we really need to. And this is where diplomats also should be active. Not just where they are, but active with their, with their capital as well. If they believe in something, if they see that this is the way it is, they may be charged by their capital of, you know, you've been too long and that's always a danger. But if they really believe, they really should take the, the position there. And this is the, the, the difference that I make between the interests and the positions that countries, you know, take. Because there is always a way to find that common ground. Most of the time, some very often, very, very seldom is it that it's really impossible to find a point of tangency. But that area of tangency, of coming together, is much smaller when everybody's focusing on their positions and much bigger if one steps out and looks at interests. You also mentioned creativity. Most people wouldn't associate creativity to diplomacy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, I had a long time uh, when I was in university, I remember I was, I had a professor of mine who was my favorite professor of political philosophy. And I was said, I was, I'm thinking of going into diplomacy and uh, my stepfather was a diplomat. And so he said, no, no, diplomacy is too boring for you. There's no room for creativity. You need something more dynamic, uh, you know, journalism or writing or this or that, you know, or business. But, and I had this conversation, I remember, with my stepfather. My stepfather, multilateral diplomat himself, said, no, there's a lot of room for creativity in diplomacy. And I've seen that as being a diplomat myself. But the type of creativity is the type of a master craftsman. You know, master craftsman. We live in Geneva, one of the main, if not the main place in the world for good watches. I could never understand 
the way a master craftsman understands the nuance of his work because they focus on it in such a way and they see the small things in such a way. And, and this is the kind of, you know, nuance, nuance creativity that is required at really good diplomacy. Day-to-day -day diplomacy may pass with <laughs> not too much creativity. But when you try to solve a complex issue where you have 193 positions, where you have really a lot of emotions that have built up over years on a given area, it requires a lot of creativity to try to find a space that is common to all and perhaps expand it even. And that's one area of, of creativity. However, I'm also reminded of a writer, uh, an ex-Yugoslav writer, who was also a diplomat. He was also foreign minister in Yugoslavia, and he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, Ivo Andrić. He has a beautiful essay on who are diplomats. I encourage people to uh, look it up. And in it, he says, you know, a diplomat should be creative, but not too creative. So let me then qualify what I just said. Yes, there's a lot of room for creativity. But what Ivo Andrić means by not too creative is that, especially in areas of peace and security, but also in other areas, being too creative can create a situation that can be dangerous, at least individually for that diplomat, but also perhaps for his country or her country. We're talking about a craft in which with words, wars are started and ended. So a few bad words can start a war, a few good words can end a war. And this is where the good creativity is to find a space that, you know, sustains peace, but the bad creativity is. And this is where I say, I qualify my own point of earlier, that it is good that I had the experience from not being a diplomat, that you can look at point of view differently. But this is where non-diplomats coming into it, who try to be too creative, can be dangerous. It's understandable. Let's stay with your experience as a diplomat here in Geneva. What is, in your view, the difference between representing a small country, representing a big country, or even a world power? Do you think that in your daily work, being a representative of a small country is radically different than being a representative of another radically government? different. Okay, can you tell our audience about that? So let's take the two extremes. Let's not take the middle extremes, the middle kind of possibilities. So a very small country with a very small mission like my own to illustrate when I was chairing last year the Biological Weapons Convention, at one point I was one diplomat covering everything in Geneva, including trade, including health, including intellectual property, disarmament, human rights, and chairing the Biological Weapons Convention. So that's one extreme. <laughs> and then there's the other extreme of, a, let's say, a very big uh, power, both militarily and economically, that has three, four people on one small issue. So three, four diplomats on, let's say, within human rights, three resolutions in which they are co-sponsors, right? And that's it. Okay, that's a huge difference of, uh, of intellectual power of men and women dedicated to issues. So that is clearly a working method yeah. uh, that, that makes it completely different. But is it not the principle of multilateralism that we are all the same when we come around the table of the negotiation? That's one of the key tenets of the Westphalian system of states in which all states, big or small, are equal. And small states can make that to their effect. At the end, it's 
all one vote for many things and it's a consensus thing, but that's the dangerous kind of direction that to think that I have one vote and I can ruin consensus. The more constructive approach is to, to say that I have an equal voice in this and I can equally contribute as anyone else. And if I have something constructive to say, then I can choose my timing, I can choose my issue and can, I can say it. And even as I did, chair and take the full responsibility for the reins and say, all right, I'll take, I'll take care of this for all of us. And, and these are, I think, opportunities that small states should and must take. The first part of contributing with good ideas, they should not just let some others to kind of do it. And no, we can all contribute. Let me pull out for a second, the way I view, view multilateral. Multilateralism is very often just put at as the buildings that it represents, right? Or the institutions that it, that it has. So it is the UN secretariat body that is uh, very often seen with, with the, an image, if one is looking at it from the outside of the Security Council, of the General Assembly that are, that are there. And, you know, here you can fly, with, let's say, with, with a drone or something like that and take a f f photo of the, of the full palais. And that's multilateralism, right? The buildings that are there and what the work that is going on there. For me, multilateralism is about solving problems. And those problems keep on changing. They're different now than they were 10, 15 years ago. They're certainly different than they were in 45, 50. And they will be quite different in even 5, 10 years and 20 years. Now, we have given bodies that already exist. So we can use them, as I said, if you have an issue, you can take it as a human rights issue. You can take it as a security issue. Yeah. You have the bodies of how you take a, a topic. And anyone can do that. You take up a topic. You try to build up a coalition around it. You try to build it up as an issue. But ultimately, it's about solving problems. We're here in Geneva as well, trying to solve one of the most interesting problems, one of the most interesting issues in the world right now. Autonomous vehicles. Right now, the UNECE is in the name of all, even though it's a regional commission, working on trying to unravel how we may come to a point where all the vehicles are on the road are autonomous, how they communicate, and what, what, what is that going to look like in the future. So imagine how, how, how big and interesting an issue that is. And it's discussed here in Geneva. So to come back to it, multilateral, the way I see it is about solving problems, and when you've defined the problem, you can be creative in trying to solve it with the interests of all taken into account. And small states have a role as much as big states in these issues. And they should not, we should not pull out and just say, well, it's complex, it's hard, we're in such a such a state and it's, you know, just no. There are problems and let's all together try to find the solutions to them. There is also a security dimension. I've heard from other permanent representatives, ambassadors, small states, that for a small state, multilateral is also a safety. That maybe bigger states need it less than small states. And I remember this famous phrase of Doug Amarshot, the, the Secretary General of the United Nations back, back in, the, in, the, in the late 50s, who said before General Assembly, he said, the UN is more important for those small states that need it than for those big ones that can, that can ensure their own yeah. protection. What do you think about that? Absolutely. There is this image that has been abused, I think, of, uh, you know, Gulliver as, and is the image of a big state and the Lilliputians as perhaps small states trying to tie down Gulliver 
with the you know so that they make sure that he doesn't kind of destroy them all and that's along the lines of this but i would say it's a, it's a, it's not just a two way it's a 193 or 100 almost 200 way dynamic it's in the interest of all for us to have what i call a climate of legality oh that's and a very powerful one <laughs> that's a powerful one so a climate of legality yeah let's you know, we're running 40 minutes now, but oh. let's talk a little bit about that, please. What do you mean by a climate of legality? How does that connect to multilateralism? Well, very often, the expectations of many is that the international level should be the same as, as a well-organized country. And I say well-organized country because we should all be realistic that the rule of law is not equal in all countries. So it is very hard to have functioning rule of law within a state where a state may have, will have, should have an army, a police force, courts, an executive, a judicial and a, a legislative different branches. So even in such an environment where, you know, there's the possibility of controlling all those, it's hard to come to rule of law. Now imagine that at the international level where you have completely different interests that are with different capacities of different countries. You cannot expect the same kind of legal predictability at the international level as you have nationally. It's impossible. It's the nature of the system as it is. But that system need not be chaotic either. It need not be a law of the jungle of only of the powerful. There is this climate of legality. There is an international law. But I, I think now it's a slightly different, uh, but it's connected issue. I think that international law very often is viewed very rigidly. You know, the sources of international law, treaties, and, uh, you know, you have uh, judicial interpretation, use cogents. And, and if we pull out a little bit and we look at it just the way I described it, this climate of legality, of repercussions for bad actions and awards for good actions, for cooperative action, then that becomes slightly looser and easier to digest, not to take away from the international law. That is a prerequisite of what I'm talking about. But this climate of legality is any country that has done something internationally. We're talking about as well wars and over the past years or tracing back really to the existence of the UN in 45. Has in one way or another tried to justify its action according to international law. To some call to a climate of legality. To some, clim to, to some call to legitimacy. So this is not insignificant. There is a need of everybody for there to be rules of the game. And sometimes those rules of the game are very predictable and precise, and sometimes they're not. But there is a feeling of boundaries. And this, this is the climate of legality that I'm talking about. These boundaries that say, you know, this is acceptable behavior, this is not acceptable behavior. And when it's unacceptable, then everybody says, well, listen, this is unacceptable, according to us all. And even if there isn't a law international that we can point to, or there may be, but you know, we may disagree on them, we can all say we don't agree with this kind of behavior. Very good. And in this area, you work, you work in many areas, as you told us before, but the two commissions that you chaired were in the area of disarmament and arms control. So they're directly linked to our capacity to keep the world at peace. Yeah. So peace in your, in your job here in Geneva was the overarching objective. One could say that because even if you're looking at, at human rights, one could say that abuse of human rights very often results in destabilized peace. 
and, and security considerations. So yeah, I could agree with that, that statement. And it, and it certainly is in line with what I said, the way I see diplomats as the glue uh, that keeps global peace together. And yes, and Geneva is a very good place for that because it is, in a way, the center for so many different issues that are discussed here with the common thread of maintaining peace. And it is very important, I think, in this point in life, point in life of the international system as we have seen it, of, of our historical development, I would say as human species, that we maintain peace in the coming period. Just the two issues that I mentioned that I had the privilege of chairing. So, you know, biological weapons and technologies that are there, such as CRISPR-Cas9. And again, autonomous weapons and the technologies that are there. Point to technologies, and there are others, that can be highly disruptive to our way of life as human species and as earthlings, because we should remember that we're not the only beings, sentient beings on this planet. So as earthlings and as the most sentient of these earthlings on this planet, we should be custodians of it. But we are coming to a crossroads. There will be disruptions. And these disruptions will require problem-solving approaches that multilateralism offers. And in that, we have to be creative and be with a mindset that sustains peace. Because I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that we, this crossroads that I'm talking about may be the difference between Star Trek and Stone Age. So let's choose Star Trek. I think that's a wonderful way to conclude this podcast. Jivan Georgiski, thank you for being our guest in this wonderful episode of the podcast. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thank you very much, Francesco, and good luck in the future. Thank you very much. Same to you.